State of Digital Publishing is a startup market research publisher producing a publication and community for digital media publishing professionals, content, and media owners in new media and publishing technology. In this episode, we speak with Alex Pan, co-founder at StoryPress, about the state of Jamstack development for publishers. StoryPress is a publishing platform for creator teams making media brands, providing the software tooling that allows media companies to build faster, pivot quicker, and earn more. Let's begin. Hi, Alex. How are you? I'm good, thank you, Valhe. How are you? I'm good. Good, thanks. Yeah, we're fortunate to be speaking to each other for the past month or so. Also met you in person at a Digital Publishers Alliance event, which is pretty interesting. It's the first event in Australia like that for quite some time. So, yeah, but um, just for our audience, I guess uh, Alex and his team at StoryPress are doing pretty interesting things in the space. And um, just wanted him to, and we're going to be talking about the process of CMS, when you're choosing a CMS, what that looks like and sort of things around Jamstack development and just publishing in general from a tech point of view. But before we go into that, Alex, how about we get to know about you and where you're up to these days and how you got into publishing? Yeah, definitely. So I'm Alex and I'm one of the co-founders of StoryPress. Effectively, we're Shopify for media companies is what we like to kind of call ourselves. And we're effectively an all-in-one turnkey publishing solution for media companies. And how I got into this was a bit of an interesting journey. Basically, I've always been obsessed with media as a kid. And in year 11, I decided to drop out of high school and decided to study media at Macquarie University. So one thing led to another and I'm creating a student publication. And that's when I hit the pain point that publishing tooling and especially software around media is incredibly, incredibly hard to use, especially with a poor person without any funds or without any prior media or technology experience. So that just led me down the rabbit hole even deeper and deeper about understanding media and understanding the tooling surrounding media, all from me kind of dropping out of high school and deciding to create a student publication. Interesting. Yeah, I had a similar journey as well. I didn't continue my HSC, but um, I think ultimately, as long as you, even though you don't know the final way of getting to the destination so long as you have a destination that's the key thing that you need to do so how long was this realization of that and what was happening at that time like was medium around or was stuff stack and all that stuff around and i mean my curiosity is like there's been a lot of people that have sort of particularly for indie publishers try to try to tackle this issue why why do you feel like that there's still a pain point yeah definitely so Things like Substack are really, really great for individual creators. But if you've been in the media game for a while, you know that to scale a media enterprise, you need to build brand. Visual brand, product brand is at the core of what your the product you're selling is. And why is brand so important? Because brand allows you to go what I call multi-SKU, so multi-SKU and diversify your revenue streams. With Substack, you're really limited to one revenue stream, and that being subscriptions. You can't advertise on Substack. In fact, advertising is banned on Substack. And imagine trying to create events around a brand you create on Substack. Like, how would you do it? How would you get the pull to create that event? There's no tooling associated with that. And the fact of the matter is, brand unlocks so much more revenue outlets than just subscriptions. Mm -hmm. And... Current creator tools are focused on the individual as opposed to the team. And the team is when media brands start scaling up into media companies and where that tool, which kind of fits in that demographic. So we are the guys where sub individual Substack contributors 
grow out of and start looking to expand their brand past just subscription revenue streams? That, I think that's a good decision you made between what creator is and thing is, but um, we're still seeing a big rise of what they're calling now the golden age of the content creator economy. <laughs> like um, the publishers are concerned about maybe that's taking over what they're trying to do and, and all that type of stuff. What, what are your thoughts around how the role of a content creator is now become more influential and how that's impacting into the current space and with people that you've even been speaking uh, about yeah. when trying to get into growing their own media brand. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's actually a really, really good article by Brian Morrissey from The Rebooting, I believe, that he wrote about this. Let me, it's like he says something along like the shift to individuals from institutions has been a major catalyst of publishing and bundling. But he believes that he's going to see more confederations between individuals in the future. And by confederations, we effectively mean creators confederating together, coming together to create what we conventionally have known as normal media publications or newspapers. And the fact of the matter is you need people together to publish under one masthead to create a unified message on your platform and create more content at a high cadence to capitalize on much higher reach where you can then capitalize on advertising opportunities, which is where the real goldmine is. So in the past 10, 15 years, the past five to 10 years, I know there's been a lot of focus on subscriptions. The year-on-year increase of subscription revenue has not been offset by the year-on-year decrease in advertising revenue from a macro lens. With that being said, advertising is also getting increasingly harder and harder to track conventionally by things like IBIS reports because you're getting more things like brand partnerships, which aren't exactly programmatic advertising, but still drive increasing revenue for newer and newer newsrooms. For example, we're working with a new site right now called impact.site over in the US, and they don't run any programmatic deals at all. All they run is brand partnerships. And brand partnerships are nearly impossible to do with if you don't have a brand to partner, partner with. So... Yeah, I hope that answers your question in terms of why I think personally we're going to see as creators become successful in the creator space, they're slowly going to confederate and build their own publishing kind of mini empires. And when that happens, they'll enter into sponsorships, sponsored content. And after that, once they get even more scale, they'll start doing programmatic again. So it's all one big cyclical <laughs> cyclical phase that um, history always repeats itself. And we're kind of just at peak creator right now. But the next period of next influx and the next shift in terms of what we're talking about in the media will inevitably be creators banding together and creating mastheads. So you don't see anything in terms of Web3 or decentralization <laughs> playing, a, playing a factor into that? Or do you feel well, like that's all going to go into your tech stack as well? To be completely honest, we don't play that deeply into Web3. I think examples of Web3 that are interesting to investigate is, um, I believe Coachella did a very interesting experiment with, with Web3 where they sold an NFT of a lifetime ticket. Now, why is that NFT so successful? It's because of the, the culture associated with Coachella. You're not buying the value that you're paying for that lifetime ticket to Coachella the economic decision of a consumer to make that buying decision isn't because of the economic value of a lifetime ticket. It's to tell your friends that you're such a Coachella guy that you bought that NFT for a lifetime ticket. It's value signaling. 
at the end of the day, it all comes back to brand. <laughs> so yes, NFTs are a very interesting way to monetize brand, but from a first principles perspective, one should really think about how do I get to that place where I can start selling NFTs? Think about it from a more strategic level as opposed to a more tactical level. At the end of the day, what do we focus on? We focus on allowing media brands to go multi-skew and diversify their revenue streams, whether it be subscriptions, advertising, NFTs. Who cares? The right revenue stream really depends on the type of media business that you're running. But to come to that decision where you know, have that decision-making ability to know this is the right revenue stream to pick, you first need to build that amazing brand, which is visual brand, um, content brand, SEO optimization, effective distribution. These are all the things that we should be concentrating on, not the things like NFTs, which maybe fit who knows how many media businesses. Not every media business can sell NFTs. Specific media businesses can. And I'm not an expert in this space. <laughs> that's true. So sometimes people see that shiny object and they sort of get attracted to it and they lose sight of the, the core thing they have to do anyways. Exactly. And yeah, so exactly. let's take a step. Yeah, let's take a step back, Alex, because, um, you know, what you're doing is a big undertaking. It's not a small task. So you decided that you're going to start StoryPress. What happened next? Like if anyone that goes onto the StoryPress website, sometimes you also see the messaging around being the alternative to WordPress. So that's not a small undertaking. That's been something that's been entrenched with publishers for a long time. Even though Substack and stuff are more creators focused, mm. they still have a lot of backing. So what made you like take that big, bold step in trying to address this problem and what are the summer key masters you've achieved so far? Definitely, definitely. So the real kind of eureka moment for me was realizing that the creation of an e-commerce website is actually a lot cheaper than the creation of a content website, which actually doesn't make a lot of sense because e-commerce websites from a technical perspective are remarkably more complex as you're dealing with a bunch of dynamic data. With publications, content websites, you're literally just dealing with static data. The tech stack, really, really simple. But to get a third-party contractor to build you a content site is like five times more expensive than that of e-commerce. Why is that the case? It's because there's been a lack of investment in the technology tooling surrounding the building of a content site. And I know you're probably, this podcast is probably preaching to a very non-technical audience, but to those who are quite technical, you have things like Next.js, JavaScript frameworks, all these things, which makes a developer's life much, much easier for an e-commerce website, which doesn't exist on a content website. Now, how do we solve for that? It's not by spending more money, spending more manpower, offshoring your workforce to work with bad tools. It's to create better tools to create better content websites. And that's effectively what we're doing. As part of the StoryPress mission, we're developing a better developer ecosystem to make the creation of a content site much more efficient. So that's kind of like the impetus and kind of like overarching idea of what got me into StoryPress, the realization that why the hell is e-commerce so much cheaper than, than let's media commerce? Like it shouldn't be the case. Media commerce from a technical perspective, so much simpler. And uh, it's just a long, long journey. We're ten, around 10 years behind what's happening in the e-commerce ecosystem. And we're working hard to catch up within the next two years. Big, big undertaking, but I reckon we can make it. So next two years, you want to do that. So what's sort of set you up to be able to tackle that head on? Like no one would have thought maybe going to Taiwan, setting up a team there and 
and that type of stuff. So, like, how have you sort of tried to look at addressing the steps and the milestones to get to that to you? Yeah, definitely, definitely, definitely. Well, the first thing is understanding that the platform that publishers use mm -hmm. um, currently, that being WordPress, was fundamentally created at a period of time when we were still figuring out what how to use the internet. How is the best, what is the best way to use the internet? How is the best way to create apps on the internet? And the result of that is that you have a hyper extensible platform where you can do absolutely anything you want. And that's WordPress, a platform where you can literally build a CRM, a CMS, a pull on application, anything you want, you can build on story on WordPress. However, the con of that is that from a user experience perspective, what makes a great user experience? What makes iPhone so great as opposed to BlackBerry? It's because iPhone set clear restrictions on what the user could do. Because if you let a monkey or let a user do anything on a free-for-all kind of platform, you will break that platform or you will make mistakes that you don't know where you will break something along the way. StoryPress is built on a much more modern kind of mindset. We come with what we call sane defaults, as in we have very strong opinions and we try to guide you in the right direction to create best practice without having you think about creating best practice. But we also implement what we call escape hatches. So you can escape outside of our best practice if you want to create something really novel. So in summary, what am I trying to say here? StoryPress is designed for front-end composability, whereas WordPress is designed for back-end composability, meaning WordPress, you can swap around features in the back-end. That's where every all the features live. Yep. StoryPress, we see swapping in and features as something that should be done on the customer view layer. And that creates much more enterprise agility, reduces enterprise cost, reduces, um, creates a far better user experience. And at the end of the day, that's what you want to do as a publisher. That's that's an interesting take on the different philosophies. I appreciate you to explain that part. So you said that you guys were co-founders. So how did you bring on your team and, and start that journey, I guess? Yeah, so um, funny story. It turns out my uncle is a computer science lecturer at the National Taiwan University. So when I had the idea of StoryPress, the first person I thought of was hitting up my uncle. It's like, hey, do you know anyone that can help me like create what I want to create? And he goes, yes, as a matter of fact, I do. Like meet my two university students. And when I first met Kevin and David, they were very, very quiet. And what I didn't know was that Kevin is has the fourth most GitHub stars for PHP and David has like the 66th most GitHub stars for JavaScript. They're literally two of the top engineers in Taiwan for their age group. So really by chance that I met both of them and they've become such great engineers and helped me, taught me how to how to code and in return, I've taught them how to design because I'm a designer at heart. Nice, nice. So that's that's where that comes from. And then you've grown yeah. your team there and then you're also growing your team here. I know you recently also hired a growth marketing person as well. That's, that's great. I mean, you, you spoke about WordPress and then now obviously there's been um, the past couple of years about creating headless CMSs. I think that's one of the ways that publishers are trying to get around having more flexible systems. We've spoken in the past as well, and you've spoken about to me about Jamstack development. I know that's yeah. not a new concept for, yes. for people out there, but um, why are those things important to consider? Or why is maybe headless CMS not the way to go? What's the direction for that? So 
to level set here, operating WordPress headlessly is, in my opinion, defeats the purpose of why you would run WordPress. You see a lot of consultants out there. Um, they're also very anti-operating WordPress headlessly. And I totally agree. I think it doesn't make sense to operate WordPress headlessly. And the reason why is because we need to understand what does headless actually mean from a technical perspective. Going back to what I was talking about composability, what is composability? The ability to put in a new feature, take it out without breaking the rest of the system, like Lego bricks. Putting in something, taking it out, putting in something, taking it out. The purpose of headless and the purpose of compose and the purpose of Jamstack is moving composability to the front end. It's making the role of composability a responsibility of the front end and the view layer of your site. Now, WordPress, the whole point of using WordPress is that it has an extremely composable backend. So why would you use composability on the front end when the whole value proposition of WordPress is that it has great composability in the backend? So headless, headless WordPress doesn't make sense. If you're using WordPress, you're using it because it has a composable backend. So that's the level set. Now, if that's the case, why would you choose between backend composability versus front-end composability. And I believe everyone listening here has had a similar experience where you've updated a WordPress plugin or you've removed a WordPress plugin and it's completely wrecked your site. Think about site architecture like a river. The backend is the top of the river and the front-end is the bottom of the estuary. Yep. When you create composability in the backend, you are dropping features at the top of the estuary where it is getting mixed along the river to get to its final destination. That means when you remove things in the backend, because it's getting mixed as the data is transformed before it's routed to the client, there's a very high risk that it breaks crap. So yeah. that is from an architectural perspective. That is why you want to move the role of composability to the front end, because that is the final destination of the data and there's less mixing of the data in kind of like the stream before it hits your reader's eyeballs. So from an architectural perspective, yes, WordPress has done as good as it can in providing composability to the backend, but from an architectural perspective, they're still fundamentally limited um, in terms of the risk of bringing composability to WordPress. At the end of the day, it's a risk decision. The risk of changing something through a Jamstack approach is a lot lower than the risk to changing something through a WordPress approach. Now, why is it that publishers still haven't kind of gone into headless and used another natively headless CMS? Again, it comes back to the ecosystem problem. All current headless CMSs are fundamentally designed and have an ecosystem for e-commerce. If you go to something like Strapi, if you go to something like Dardo CMS, if you go to any kind of modern CMS provider, Butter CMS even, all the plugins, although not plugins, all of the tooling surrounding these CMSs to bring composability to the front end are focused on e-commerce and brand website solutions. Yeah. We need to bring the ecosystem of publishing tools to the headless experience so that publishers can slowly start to try and see how Headless can tangibly benefit their organization. Because Headless on WordPress doesn't make sense. <laughs> it just simply doesn't make sense due to that estuary kind of spiel that I had earlier. So technically, does um, 
Champ Stack, which is pretty much meshing a lot of things together and then having that into one thing, um, just for our audience out there. Um, does that mean that that's, if someone's going to consider headless, then it's using a bunch of APIs, a bunch of other things, which is then going to deliver a front-end solution, like yes. a front-end architecture? Is that what you're trying to... Yes. You are connecting APIs on the front-end as opposed to connecting the APIs on the back-end is right. what Jamstack fundamentally is about. And all the J JavaScript, like you said, Next.js and all those things to deliver better user experiences. Is that correct? Yeah. So with, with a focus on front-end, there's a lot more tooling to create high-performance dynamic experiences. Publishing has been stuck in static experiences for a very, very long time. However, if you look at what the innovators in the space are doing, for example, Bustle Doodle Group, uh, Vox Media Group, IMDB even can be noted, like can be set as a media outlet and IGN. All of these platforms are slowly, slowly, slowly moving to more dynamic experiences. Now, what do you do when publishers who are traditionally conventionally used to creating static experiences need to face a new reality where their customers are looking for more personalized content and more targeted content? How do you meet that future state with our current tooling? Is the best way to deliver dynamic content really through WordPress, or is it through the Jamstack? Is it through connecting these APIs via a front-end solution? And the general developer consensus is that with complex dynamic data, it's a lot, lot simpler to route it through the front-end. And then you said with the PHP experience, is there any implications in terms of site speed? Because when we spoke last time as well, a while back, you said that it's much faster to load. How does that happen that it loads faster if it's all sort of coming towards the front end and building it to the front end. This is a complex because you can create very performant websites on WordPress hundred percent. However, the issue is how do you create performant experience on WordPress whilst fetching dynamic content? The answer to that is through additional JavaScript in the front end. However, with additional JavaScript, you add significant payload in terms of slows down your page loading speed. Within the overall technology infrastructure, there's been a variety of innovations in terms of what we call rendering strategies. There's things like static site generation, where you give an application JavaScript and it generates that JavaScript into static HTML and CSS. However, the con of that is that it's very slow to update. So new technologies have come across called hybrid rendering, which renders half or well, the most highly trafficked sites using static generation and the less trafficked sites using server-side rendering. So to surmise, why is it that you can bring more performance experiences using headless? Well, you can really bring performance experiences to both. Mm -hmm. Whether you want to route dynamic content and keep that dynamic content performant, that is the issue. And if you want to route dynamic content, then you need to look at different rendering strategies. You need to look at different strategies to retain composability, to re reduce tech debt. And the tooling around doing that and the architectural decision around doing that means that Jamstack is probably the best approach to achieve what you want. This is something that's more recently come up in the past couple of months, like Google's trying to, and this is more of an SEO question, so I appreciate that maybe you don't have the direct answer now, but um, they're trying to move away from sites actually rendering server side because of the fact that it hasn't been properly able to render it. So you said that you can do a server side and you can do hybrid. Do you think that the hybrid approach is still going to be able to make it SEO friendly or do you feel like there's another evolution that's coming with? <laughs> that's very curious. Like I didn't actually know that from a technical perspective, 
the payload delivered to the client from a server-side rendered site is exactly the same as a static-generated site. All the static-generated site is that it generates the payload ahead of time, and a server-side generated site generates the payload at request time. The thing that Google penalizes is client-side rendering. Client-side rendering is when you render the entire payload on the client, as in it executes a JavaScript, piece of JavaScript code to create yep. the HTML on the client, as opposed to executing the JavaScript code on the server, which is then sending HTML and CSS to the client. Yeah, so from a server side, I would very, very much doubt that Google would be penalizing server-side rendering, just because so, so many publications rely on server-side rendering. And from a, if I was Google and I was operating a web crawler, it really wouldn't matter that much to me. Something that they're saying that's more of a temporary solution, but it's maybe something that we have to just keep watching and see what they <laughs> keep evolving and see and what they say. Is there anything that's exciting you about more of the text, the Jamstack development or anything that's something that we should be looking forward to in the upcoming years ahead? Or Because it's been around for like that. Terminology was coined four or five years ago. I think I've just, as a result of speaking with you, learned more about that now. But um, yeah, what's happening in the community there and how does that implicate, what's the implications for publishers on that front? Yeah, so Jamstack um, traditionally um, started off as just statically rendering sites and delivering these pre-generated sites and offloading scaling to a CDN. Yep. The current focus in the Jamstack ecosystem is around the notion of composability. How can I best organize a set of APIs and microservices and wrap them to the client-side front-end and not have to deal with any back-end operations. How can we do that most effectively? That is the most exciting thing that's happening in Jamstack right now. And I'd encourage everyone kind of listening to this to pay a very close eye to what Shopify is doing with Shopify Hydrogen. Shopify Hydrogen has created, the Shopify has created their own front-end framework based off Next.js. And where they take that framework moving forward will also have very strong implications for where publishers should be moving as well. Because at the end of the day, if you're opening up an e-commerce shop, you're creating FMCG, you're creating dynamic experiences. And although publishers are currently still creating standard experiences, we all know that the trend is towards more personalized content, more personalized experiences, more localized experiences, and these things can only be delivered via dynamic solutions. And it is general consensus that Jamstack and composability and moving that dynamic logic to the front end is the way to go to create scalable. And at the end of the day, the best, most customer centric solutions. Appreciate that, Alex. Thanks for that. Yeah, I guess we sort of started speaking about this, but let's jump back into this conversation. So publishers, there might be startups or they might be already, like you said, in the phase of they're trying to create a brand. They typically trying to figure out what the next set of ways they can monetize sites are or how they're going to build their sites are. What do you think is the best decision-making process they can make in order to determine what's the best requirements for them, whether it be StoryPress or just in general, what the platform CMS is? <laughs> Well, we didn't really touch on this, but um, part of StoryPress, it's not just Jamstack. We also bring in um, editorial workflow tooling. So publishing, as you know, content publishing is one of the most workflow heavy industries in the world. Like some of our publishers, one article goes through like 70 to 80 steps from just an idea to it hitting the reader's eyeballs. Absolutely. In choosing a tech solution, you shouldn't only be thinking about site performance or site platform. That should be dictated by your content strategy and your audience strategy. So your audience strategy should dictate how dynamic you want your content, how personalized you want your content, what do your customers want? 
The real tangible thing that can bring a lot of efficiency to newsrooms is the workflow tooling surrounding. I have been in multiple newsrooms and I'm always surprised by how slow and clunky the overall newsroom workflow is compared to something like software development. And if you think about it, publishers were the very first people to implement agile, right? Agile practice. <laughs> but yet we don't see like Jira for publishers. We don't see tools specifically implementing agile for publishers. So it's, what... a, mental, it's a mental overload sometimes having so much articles you're publishing through. So yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Same as coding. Like every day we try to like create four or five our equivalent of articles and push that to production every single day. But where is the tooling around that? Or what platform has the tooling or can connect to the correct tooling to provide that level of workflow efficiency to the newsroom? I can think of a couple. You've got the big boys like Vox's Chorus, yeah. RXP. They're very, very workflow heavy. Very, very, the key value proposition if you're choosing these two solutions is workflow. However, they also cost like 70 US, 70 grand a month. So unless you got that kind of money to spend, it's probably the bulk of Australian publishers are probably locked out of that. Now, to plug what we do, <laughs> we kind of try to bring that Arc XP experience and that um, Fox Chorus experience to a much more budget conscious consumer. So we try to bring that workflow, we bring that modern technology infrastructure to publishers. And whilst we might not be fully kind of fully realize our vision, can't cover every single publisher at this moment in time, that is where we want to develop towards to expand the breadth of who we can service. So if you're trying to bring what is at the top scale to make a budget friendly, how does the, again, it's a little bit more towards your plug, but I just want to help people realize like what's going to be the value, like how they're going to understand the value. If Because what happens sometimes as well is like you go through a vendor, you see all these features, are you, then you're like, am I going to be able to choose all these features? Am I going to be able to use all these features? Is it worth, worth it? Or is it going to cause complication? Or is it going to be an approach where there's going to be too much there and it's not going to be as effective like, Yes. You know, so what, what's what's some of the concerns that publishers should understand from that? Yeah, it's very, very funny, actually. During the sales kind of motion, because I've talked to a lot of publishers, what has always struck me, publishers are so, so used to a terrible technology user experience. And they're so afraid of technology, which is a real, real kind of mental dichotomy. Because as a publisher, what are the two platforms that you spend the most time on? First one is WordPress. And the second one is Facebook, Twitter, Google, and Instagram. So it's between the platform, the worst UX in the world, and the platforms with the best UX in the world. And there's not really in between. Because publishers are so conditioned to kind of that Facebook kind of experience and so conditioned to being scared of using their technology experience, we get a lot of questions like, do you do image optimization? Do you do SEO? Do you do, um, do, you do image focal cropping? Or do you, all these kind of really basic questions, which really surprises me because if you go to any e-commerce vendor, they won't ask you that question because it is expected. That is the expected experience when you select an e-commerce platform. Like you don't go to Shopify and go, do you have SEO plugins? Of course, blow yes, Shopify has SEO built in, right? Or do you have image optimization? Of course they do. Or like, do you have to manage services on, on, on Shopify? Of course you don't, right? It's not even a question. But because WordPress has made it so complex over the past 20 years and publishers are so used to being scared of their tools, 
it is actually a problem that we face when we talk to publishers. We go, hey, that's actually really easy. Like, we don't need to be scared of that. And then because I say that we don't need to be scared of that and tell them that everything's so easy, they actually get even more scared because they're kind of suspicious. They're like, oh, we work with so many bad tech vendors. Every one of them tells us it's easy. And because they're working with WordPress, it never is. So <laughs> it's great. It's great that you mentioned that. So I could vent my frustrations over talking to a lot of publishers that we've had um, in the past couple of months. Well, definitely. I mean, that, that's the case. So like, I think it's sometimes always the case with software vendors when they try to like do a lot of features, but maybe some of them doesn't work. So I mean, the thing is like, if that's expected for, yeah, maybe that's, it's more of an education long-term yes. thing that you have to work on, which is, that's why it's, it's not an easy mission that you're yeah, exactly. That you're going on, so exactly. things like image image optimization shouldn't even be something on the publisher's mind. It should be just just on the platform. Like, do I go to Facebook and be like, "Hey, Facebook, I'm only going to use Instagram if you have image optimization"? No, it doesn't even process in my decision making factor in using Instagram. Of course, Instagram has image optimization, <laughs> and we need to bring that same kind of experience to publishers like or Substack. Do I when I make a buying decision to use Substack? Am I like, do I have in the back of my mind, I'm scared that Substack might not have image optimization. Substack might not optimize my images. Of course I don't. It's like plumbing. It's like buying a house and, and having running water. Is that yeah. basic of a need? Like, you shouldn't be buying a house and questioning whether that house is running water. And that's the same thing, the same kind of experience that publishers should also be having when choosing what house to house their content which currently isn't provided because the tools in the current ecosystem aren't built like that, which is, you can see the frustration in my voice. <laughs> no, no, that, it's, it's totally yeah. fine. I think, I think the key thing is like, like I said, I, I wanted you to raise all the things that you're seeing from your end. So it's, I appreciate you raising this and um, yeah, just, there's another my, thing that came to my mind. Like if someone's then looking towards enterprise solutions on CMS like, you know, Magento or like Sh Shopify or, or there's other ones, wouldn't they ask these type of questions anyways? Or isn't that others those type of questions that people would ask on that level anyways? Or what, what, what are your thoughts around enterprise versus non-enterprise? Normally uh, we so. see the purchasing motions. We've talked to a lot of e-commerce vendors. Mm -hmm. um, the questions that they are, get asked is around the consumer experience. It's not about the technical user experience, like how many milliseconds can you shave off in a loading screen? It's yeah. about the UX journey throughout exploring an e-commerce shop surrounding optimizing the conversion moment. Because the technology tooling in publishing is just so poor, we're focusing on like shaving a couple of hundred milliseconds from a loading screen and not concentrating on the user experience and the user journey via discovering the content. There's no innovation in this space. How can we push content discovery one step further? We've seen examples of this over in America where media companies are very well funded. Things like The Outline, things like Vox, things like Semaphore. All of these guys are innovating in this space, but because, again, experimentation is so expensive, experimentation is locked to only the biggest of the big players. And we've been seeing a lack of innovation in the space in Australia. Let's move on more on to the future and some of the positive stuff that's been happening. Um, so you guys recently received another fundraising. Congratulations. Um, you, you're also involved in Start, when I mean fundraising this year, uh, there's also a start mate as well that you guys w went into the recent round. So with all that, what's the sort of immediate next steps that you are focusing on for the next year? Yeah, definitely, definitely. 
our focus next year is to deliver over 1 million page views a month for our customers across all our platforms. We want to hit more than 1 million. I reckon we could hit two to three mil easily. And that all is dependent on us going to New York and getting a lot of US clients because that makes conversations with us a lot easier. US-based media operators, a lot more uh, risk on. They also are a lot more uh, capital. They have a lot more capital allocated to play around and experiment with new solutions. In Australia, these things just don't exist. So we're focusing on the US, bringing a couple of publishers on the US. Like I've already talked, we were talks with people like Impact on the site. Probably want to get them on board, build their very first master. They get, I think, 2.5 mil social media impressions every month. To even get 10% of that would be a very, very incredible boost to our own internal page view count. And uh, after that, it's building things like internal analytics so that as the publisher, I don't have to pay 20 grand a year for Chartbeat or 20 grand a year to Parsley. I have two options, paying 20 grand a year or 20 grand a year to Parsley or Chartbeat or hiring an internal data analyst to figure out how to use GA4. What have we just brought publishing analytics, publishing focused analytics into the platform and offered it to publishers at no cost? Then wouldn't that be a massive no-brainer in terms of the buying decision of what CMS to choose from? So that's our core focus for the next couple of months. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of that happening, particularly with the depreciation of third-party cookies. So I guess having a CMS that's already ready for that, uh, or this tech stack that complements that, it's going to be exactly complementary. So that that makes sense. Exactly. Um, is there any final tips or advice you'd like to give to our audience today on how to, you know, whether it's StoryPress or whether it's just in general, what they need to consider? Yeah, definitely, definitely. Well, from a technical perspective, the only thing that I would recommend is really try to understand the technical landscape of not just where publishing is sitting, but where the broader technology landscape sits, especially look to e-commerce as to where the industry is shifting and what technologies that you can use to create an unfair advantage for yourself against the other incumbents who are stuck using legacy technology. Look towards what other non-publishers are using. Try to understand why those companies chose those technologies and try to think of how you can incorporate that into your content business. And then I guess obviously make sure that it makes sense from a budgeting point of view. And exactly. exactly. Uh, how how do they justify the ROI then? Like, it's just going to be mostly based on, yeah, like you said, the audience and strategy. So long as it complements the audience strategy and that they're baking that cost, then they should get the ROI, I guess. Exactly, exactly, exactly. And it's also de-risking as well. Content is moving so fast, but there's one certain that we know, and that's content's moving towards personalization. What is the best way, best long-term route to achieve personalization? Well, <laughs> I think we've already covered that in this podcast and you know my answer around that. But um, it's also long-term hedging, hedging consideration against future-proofing your newsroom and future-proofing your content business. Absolutely. We've seen that recently as well. So 100%, you have to always keep thinking think about future-proofing. So with that, Alex, really appreciate your time, your perspective, and wish you good luck in, in your journey. I know it's a tough one, but I think that you're trying to make a big impact. So thanks so much. Yeah, likewise. Thank you so much, Rahe. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the State of Digital Publishing Podcast. Listen to past and upcoming episodes across all major podcast networks. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and join our community groups. Finally, visit stateofdigitalpublishing.com for premium information, resources, and become a member today. Until next time.